Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of The Witcher, chapter-by-chapter book review, where I'll go through a summary of the latest chapter and give my detailed thoughts on it today. I'm discussing chapter 12, the final chapter from the final book, kind of, asterisk, (laughs) The Lady of the Lake. So this is the chapter that is wrapping up the story we're going to continue the series with Season of Storms. Um, so, yeah, we're not done with this. We're not done just yet. I'm feeling emotional, though. I am. I'm not going to lie. This has been... It's just been fantastic. I've really enjoyed doing this podcast, going through this whole series, and... A lot of the feedback that I've gotten, I I can't believe that even one person listens to this. And I I know there's not a lot of you out there that listen to it, but still, the fact that anybody at all listens to this is mind-blowing to me. And um, I'm very grateful. I know I I show my appreciation at the end of each episode, but I... I, I do want to let you know that those those thank yous are not hollow. I truly mean it. I really am grateful for you taking the time to listen to me, an idiot, ramble about this book series. Um, but it, it makes me very happy because I absolutely love doing this. And I'm really sad that it is kind of coming to an end. Like we are going to continue with the season of storms, but that's going to go by really fast. And I'll explain why. Uh, so season of storms has... 19 chapters and something that I've mentioned, I don't think I've talked about this in a while. Maybe I have, I don't know, 58 episodes. I don't know. I can't remember what I've said. I'm sure I've repeated myself many times, but I'm not going to do 19 episodes covering that book. I have never read season of storms. This was what what I was going to say. I've never read season of storms. So I don't know exactly what happens. Uh, that, I've been excited for it because I haven't read it. It's going to be really easy to avoid spoilers. Like it was not, it was not easy to do that through this series. I didn't want to reveal anything that was going to happen, but uh, you know, it, it was kind of a, it, it was, it was difficult to do, but, um, you know, season of storms, I don't have to worry about that. But the thing is I looked at the book just to see, okay, um, how many episodes is, is this going to be? How many chapters are there? And I saw there were 19 and I thought, yeah, there's no way I'm doing 19 episodes of this book, especially considering how small it is. So I figured these chapters are going to be really small. I don't think a lot can really happen in them. I also don't know what happens though, but I did actually pick up the book and started reading it last night and chapter one ended with barely anything taking place in it. And I'm uh, assuming that the rest of the book is going to go that way. So what we're going to do, I haven't decided exactly how many chapters we're going to do per episode, but we are going to do more than one chapter per episode. I'm just going to wing it and improvise. Um, I'm just going to read a few chapters and then decide from there what we're going to include in the next episode. So, um, with that announcement out of the way, uh, we can move on. Uh, one other little thing is, um, if you're listening to this in, in the distant future, this, uh, doesn't apply to you, but if you are listening to this, if you do keep up with these, uh, around the time that they come out, um, I'm not going to be uploading the first episode where we cover season of storms, um, next week. So I upload these every Saturday, if you didn't know. And um, next Saturday, I will not be uploading an episode. I'm taking a week off in between books, which has been uh, what I've 
um, that's what I've been doing since I, I think since I started this. So don't expect an episode next week, but yeah, if you're listening in the future, you don't have to worry about that because it will probably already be out in the, you know, two weeks out from what I upload this. Anyway, uh, I'm going to go through this chapter the way I went through chapter 10. Um, so book in hand, I have my falling apart book in front of me. It's, it's uh, about to be in two pieces. The spine is not really attached. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm showing, um, in the video, you can see how it's falling apart. Uh, yeah, it looks like crap, but either way it works. The words still, <laughs> the words have not been broken. The words are still words. It's still readable for now. Um, but yeah, I've only done this once uh, in the covering chapter 10 of this book, where I just go through the actual physical book instead of having written out notes ahead of time and then going through those. I really liked that. I'm probably going to do that for all of Season of Storms. I don't even know that this matters to you, the listener. Um, it might not. So I'm just going to get into it. Let's talk about this tragic chapter that wraps up the story of The Witcher. Uh, this is the... Uh, chapter that gives us answers to things that have been implied that have been foreshadowed throughout the whole book um so we know it, when the big event happens at the end it's not really that surprising but yeah let's we'll start from the beginning and then we'll we'll get to that thing that happens um so the chapter starts out with Geralt and dandelion arriving in rivia so we knew that they were heading there um, and that Siri was going to join them later. Uh, she got the lodge's permission. They all voted to see if um, they would allow her to go. Uh, they they voted yes. So Siri's supposed to be on her way to meet them. They get there. They arrive in the town. So the town is called Rivia. It's in the country of Rivia. And there's the castle there. And Dandelion notes that because he doesn't see the blue and white pennants on the castle towers, then Queen Meave must not be re residing in the castle at the moment. And he mentions, he's like, I don't suppose she still remembers our desertion. Because back in, uh, I guess that was the end of baptism. Yeah, end of baptism of fire, beginning of the Tower of the Swallow. Uh, Geralt was knighted by Queen Meave, joined her army, kind of. And the company were traveling with her and they were going in the wrong direction. So they had to desert. Uh, and Dan or Geralt tells Dandelion, he goes, believe me, I don't give a damn who remembers that. He's over it. He's been through way too much. He's seen way too much shit. Things like that. He doesn't care. So they're moving through the town streets and they see this girl. She's really drunk and she's vomiting in the middle of the street. And she's got these two young men with her and they're mean and they're drunk and they're yelling at people, cursing at people that are going by. And then Dandelion and Geralt are about to go into this inn and Dandelion doesn't want to go in because he's afraid that there's going to be more guys like those two in the, in the tavern. And Geralt says, well, we're meeting someone here. Uh, that's what was, uh, this is the name of the place that was on the notice on the oak tree because in the previous chapter they found, um, this oak tree where people would leave messages, um, I guess some of them are like lost connections. So we, we don't know who at this point, it was not mentioned in the previous chapter. It hasn't been said yet at this point in the chapter. 
who they're meeting, but we're going to find out in a moment. So they go into the tavern. They see a couple of signs on the door when they walk in, and one's this poster that's got a... It's, it's a bearded monster holding a battle axe, and it says, The Dwarf, a wretched, treacherous runt. So you already know what kind of person the owner of this inn is like. Uh, but they go in, and of course, there's more... Um, it says lads. So the lads are like the guys that they saw outside, these mean, gruffy young men. There's more of them in there, just like Dandelion was afraid of. And, uh, you know, they're being really loud. They're shouting over each other and they're swearing. But they get lucky when they find out that they're actually not going to be staying here because the innkeeper tells them that someone left him a message saying that you're actually supposed to meet them at a tavern called uh, Worsings in Elm. So they're happy to be leaving there. They take off, and as they're heading to this other tavern, which is in the Dwarven, Dwarven district of the town, they go through this bazaar, and there's a bunch of people trying to sell them things, trying to sell everybody things. And um, there's another point where they see this fair-haired girl again, the one that was vomiting when they first got to, um, when they were first about to walk into the original tavern. And... She's cleaning herself up and she says that she needed a drink and it says that the girl's name was Nadia Esposito. The name became etched in the annals. It passed into history. So this girl is actually uh, pretty important uh, considering what's about to happen in this chapter. But yeah, they continue through the town and then they arrive in the district and right outside of the tavern that they're supposed to get to are the people that they're there to meet and it's the Arpen Zegrin and Zoltan Shive. So it's good to see those two again. Those two are really likable. A uh, girl hasn't seen Yarpen in a long time, not since they traveled together uh, through Kedwin when uh, Geralt and Triss were taking Ciri to the Melitale temple, so a long time ago. And then Zoltan he hasn't seen since they parted ways on the road when uh, after the, the refugee camp incident, so when Nilfgaard attacked that refugee camp that they were at, and then Geralt and Dandelion were almost executed by Visigurd, and they were freed by Regis, and then they were back on the road, and they ran into Zoltan again. So uh, they're now in the inn. So they're in the tavern. They're sitting down. They're having a drink, and they start talking. And uh, one of the first things they talk about is that food is pretty scarce right now because of the war. The war's over. We know that the war is over, but because of everything that's been going on with the, um, the, the, the peace agreements and just post-war in general, um, there's, there's pretty limited food. And they're talking about how it's really hard to find meat. The fish ponds have been emptied, so you can't really even get fish. Their farms have been burned down, so produce isn't really a good option. And uh, someone asks, it's either Geralt or Dandelion, he says, is that is it really that bad? And then they said, well, I mean, you just came up here from the south. You must have noticed. Um, think about how often you heard dogs barking. And Dandelion says, I told you I knew that something was off. Was like, there weren't any dogs. Normally when we're passing by vi villages and settlements, you're going to hear dogs barking. But we didn't hear any. And Dandelion did point that out in the previous chapter, that something was off. But he just couldn't pinpoint what it was. Uh, so people have been eating their dogs because they're starving and there's nothing else. So things are bad, just like we saw in the last chapter. Things are pretty bad right now. Uh, following the end of the war, even though the Northerners won, the people that live in the North are going to be suffering. 
And just like all the people, all the Nilfgaardian settlers that were living in the north um, are suffering. So it's just, it's pretty bad all around for the commoners. But luckily, these boys here are our friends, the, the dwarves, uh, Yarpen and Zoltan, Geralt and Dandelion. They get to sit back and relax and have drinks and eat snails. So Yarpen and Zoltan caught a bunch of snails. Doesn't sound good to me, but, uh, you know, I've also never tried a snail, so maybe... A, I should keep an open mind, but <laughs> I wouldn't want to eat a snail. They're cooked though, either way. And I wouldn't really want to eat a cooked snail, but I don't know, maybe it's good. So that they're sitting there, they're eating snails, and then they start to catch up. And Geralt tells Zoltan, so Yarpin didn't know these people, but Zoltan did. Um, he tells them about how the company died and they cheers, they toast to the members of the company. So they toast to Milva, Kahir, Regis, even to Angolem, who Zoltan hadn't met. Um, so they have like this nice little moment for their fallen comrades. And then the dwarves start to catch them up on things that they've been up to. So we know that they were soldiers in the war, but uh, Yarpin was also recently elected into a political position. So he says that he's making a career out of politics now. And Zoltan's getting ready to open up a water hammer works shop in um, Novigrad with Figs Merluzzo and Monroe Bryce. So those were two of the members um, with, when Geralt was traveling with all of them, with all the dwarves. And uh, he says that Yars and Varda fell at the Battle of the Uruga. So one of the dwarves that they were traveling with back in Baptism of Fire died in the war. And then um, he asks about, Geralt asks about the gnome that traveled with them, Percival. And he's alive. He's apparently doing pretty well. He has a jeweler's workshop in Novigrad. And he actually bought Zoltan's parrot, the, uh, I think his name is Field Marshal Windbag. And uh, here it says his name is Field Marshal Duda. I think maybe Zoltan just didn't really care enough to remember the bird's full name. But he taught, uh, Percival taught the the parrot to shout diamonds outside of his shop. So people would walk by and they would become more aware that it was a diamond shop. Usually you only know what a store sells just by looking at it. When you walk by, you're not going to know what that store sells unless you actually use your eyes to look at it. But if you're walking by and you don't look, you're going to know because uh, you're going to hear what it's about from this bird. So, yeah, um, Zoltan says that he wants to start his shop in Novigrad because there's too much competition in Mahakam, which makes sense because that's where a lot of weapons are forged and made and there's a lot of talent for that sort of thing in Mahakam. So it does make sense that he probably wouldn't be able to have a good business there if he were to start one now. But Yarpin tells him, you'll be a pariah in Novigrad. Like people are gonna smear poop on your door. They're gonna break your windows. Uh, they don't care that you that you're a war veteran. It's not going to be a good thing. But Sultan doesn't care. He says, "No, it'll be fine." So they do another uh, another cheers to Reagan Dalberg, and Reagan was one of the he was actually one of the two brothers in Yarpin's company when Geralt Siriantris traveled with Yarpin back in Blood of Elves, and um, Reagan, his brother died in that 
chapter way back when, uh, when they when the Scoia'tael attacked. So Reagan himself has now recently died at Mayana. So another dwarf that died in um, the war. So Zoltan is apparently engaged, according to Yarpin. Well, not apparently. He does confirm it. But he is getting married. He's found a woman. He's found love. And he's getting married to a woman named Yodora Brekekix. It's not Brekekix. It's Breckenriggs. Yarpin says Brekekix. And Zoltan takes that not well. He doesn't like the mispronunciation of his uh, fiance's name. So Dandelion asks when and where's the wedding, and Zoltan says, well, I don't even know if it's going to happen because the times are so bad right now. Like, who knows? So Zoltan may or may not be getting married, but he did find love, so that's nice. And they continue talking, the four of them. They're sitting there. They're kind of having a nice time, and Geralt starts to get really philosophical. He's talking about evil and chaos and order and how evil threatens order and these uh, common things that have been brought up throughout the entire series and he says that good and evil is now being waged on a different battlefield evil has stopped being chaotic he said that it acts according to peace treaties because it was taken into consideration when the treaties were being written so he's referencing what he has seen recently and Zoltan knows that he says that Carol, oh, he must have seen the settlers being driven south, which they did. They saw the Nilfgaardian settlers that were being forced to go back south and how poorly they were treated. And uh, Dandelion says, well, not only that, we've seen even more than that. Um, that was just one of the horrible things that we've seen as a result of the peace treaties. And Zoltan is kind of just like, I'm sorry, not Zoltan, Yarpin. I, I knew I'd mix up their names, Zoltan and Yarpin. They don't sound that similar, but for some reason I'm... Yeah, I knew I was going to mix those up. Anyway, uh, Yarpin says that, um, you know, like, well, I mean, that, that's just kind of how it is. Like, everybody's seen stuff. It's just how it goes. Like, what what exactly is, is your problem with it? Is it the changes that are happening in the world? And Geralt says, perhaps. And Yarpin says that um with pro there there is progress even though it doesn't seem like it there is progress and there are benefits to it and there's no point turning your nose up at all of the bad things so even though they're still bad the good does get better is the point that he's trying to make and then he talks about how progress will eventually light up the darkness but it's just not going to happen right away it's not going to happen immediately and it's not going to happen without putting up a fight Geralt doesn't really agree with this. He says that the darkness that you're talking about, it's a state of mind. It's not matter. He says that um, witchers will have to be trained to fight, something like that. And they ask, like, what do you mean, to start retraining? And he says, not really, but being a witcher doesn't interest me any longer. I'm retiring. So Geralt announces that he's not going to be a witcher anymore. He's done with it. And they don't believe him. They think that he's just kind of talking like that right now, but he's not going to stick with it. He says he's serious. He's definitely done with being a witcher. And to show that he's serious, he tries to give Zoltan his sword back. He says it's saved lives. It's taken lives. It's helped me, but I don't need it anymore. This is something that would be good for a witcher, but I'm not a witcher anymore. Uh, Zoltan doesn't want to take the sword back. He said, I didn't lend it to you. I gave it to you. You got to keep it. Um, then they decide to just put it in the uh, 
hanging up over the fireplace or the mantle in the inn. But Zoltan says, you know, you're a witcher and you always will be. Or sorry, Yarpin says that you're, <laughs> I did it again. You're a witcher and you always will be. And Geralt denies it again. And he says that he's come to the conclusion that pissing into the wind is stupid. Which I guess he uh, has taken Vilgefortz's words to heart. Uh, he says that risking your neck for anybody is stupid. And his own skin has uh, become dear to him. And he thinks that it's stupid to... Uh, risk your life in defense of somebody else's. So his cynicism is really at its peak right here. After all that he's done recently to fight evil, it still exists. So he's decided that he's going to give up. He's just feeling very cynical about it. Geralt has constantly, from the very first book, from The Last Wish, he has been conflicted with the witcher's code of neutrality. You, know, you take on a, mo a monster contract, you kill the monster, you get paid, you move on to the next. Or helping the weak and defenseless, the innocent against evil. Because he can, because he, is, he can fight things really easily. When there's evil afoot, when there are evil people doing horrible things, he actually will, he, he can defend those people way better than the average person can. And also, it's interesting to, to hear him say this because in the previous chapter, Siri noted that when they were leaving Stiga Castle, she asked him something along the lines of like, okay, like everything's good now, right? Like we're, like, you know, we defeated evil. Everything will go back to being good. We'll, we'll be fine. The world will be a, a happy place. And Geralt kind of gave her this look like, like a like a smile, but that kind of meant like, yeah, you're really naive if you believe that killing Boneheart and Vilgefortz means that evil is gone. Like evil will continue on, even though there's a little bit less, it's going to continue on. It's going to keep being born. So he's really feeling this now. But uh, Yarpin asks, asks him if his decision about giving up being a witcher um, has anything to do with um, Yennefer and Ciri. And he says a great deal. And I think that's pretty valid. He's got these two people that he loves, um, this woman that he loves and this other young lady who he thinks of as a daughter. And uh, Zoltan says, well, I don't know how you intend on making a living. I don't know how you intend to or organize your worldly existence, but uh, we'll respect your decisions. So, you know, that's fine. And then Yarpin goes back into talking about progress and how it will lighten up the gloom. Um, but even with that, darkness is always going to exist. Like evil is always going to exist and witchers will always be needed. So things will, they will get better. There is progress, but evil will continue. And therefore Geralt will remain necessary. Witchers will remain necessary. So you can stop fighting and the evil will continue. You can continue fighting, the evil will continue, but you will help contribute to that progress if you don't give up. But they kind of move on from that because shortly after they are done talking about this, the first signs of a pogrom in the town uh, present themselves. So they slowly start to hear the commotion outside and then this dwarf rushes in and he's panting and he's panicked and they ask him what's going on. And then we get this little exposition about the pogrom that takes place here in the future. So it's kind of like this retrospective of what happened and how it started. 
So it said that uh, later on, they think that the tragic events in Ribia, so this was a tragic moment, um, they were a chance occurrence. It was this explosion of justified anger springing from the mutual hostility and dislike between humans, dwarves, and elves. And that it wasn't the humans that started it, but the dwarves, because there was this dwarven traitor that insulted that woman that was previously mentioned, Nadia Esposito. And then he um, used violence against her. And then um, her friends came to her defense. And then the dwarves' friends came to his defense. And then a fight broke out, and it escalated from there so bad to the point where it turned into a massacre. And uh, so that's kind of just um, what some people think from the future. It's not exactly known, but that is how it did go down in history, was that that was the woman, her, and then this unnamed dwarf uh, were the two that the whole thing started with. But it resulted either way, like depending on how or what you want to believe was the actual cause of this, what actually got this going, um, 184 people died and half of them were women and children. And then there are other theories, though. There's other conspiracies about what happened here. So there are some people that think that this wasn't a spontaneous thing. They think that it doesn't really make sense for it to have been spontaneous because right after things got going the these wagons appeared in the streets and people were handing out wagon or handing out wagons yeah they were hanging out um handing out weapons from these wagons and uh a lot of the people that participated in the mob were people that had recently shown up in the town and that were never seen again in the town and the army took a long time to intervene and when they did intervene they were very tentative about it um, some people think that Nilfgaard provoked the riots. Um, they also think that or there's a conspiracy saying that it was concocted by the dwarves and the elves so that they could further blacken the name of humans and make them out to seem bad, like seem very racist against non-humans. Uh, but then there was this bold theory of this young graduate who was actually silenced for talking about this theory. And he thinks that uh, it was not any of these conspiracies, none of these secret plots. He thinks that it was just the simple and indeed universal traits of the local people. Ignorance, xenophobia, callous boorishness, and thorough brutishness. So it's not outright said exactly what happened. We don't get to witness from the perspective of anybody who was around in the moment that it started. Um, but based on what we've seen throughout the series, I think that this is probably the most likely. I think it was, uh, I think it's safe to believe that that Nadia woman and then the dwarf trader, I think it probably did start between those two. I don't know exactly who did what. Uh, she was drunk, though. It still doesn't mean anything. But I think it started there, and then it just escalated. And a lot of that was based on the hatred between the two races. So we return back to the scene in the tavern, and Geralt is trying to get everybody, all the dwarves, to hide in the cellar. And Zoltan doesn't want to do that. He's very reluctant to do so. He says that those are his brothers dying out there. And Geralt tells him, no, think about Eudora Brakekix. You don't want her to be a widow before her wedding. And 
That's enough to convince Zoltan to go hide. Dandelion's worried because he looks somewhat similar to an elf, which we have heard before. And um, Geralt starts to hear the screaming of people being killed. He, his hands start to shake. Um, he sees outside that there's a dwarf who was literally torn to pieces. So some very messed up violence is going on. Um, he sees dwarves getting beaten. He sees a woman get stabbed and a child getting trampled. So he takes the sword. He takes the sword that he tried to return to Zoltan. And he starts to head outside and he looks at Dandelion and he says, this is the last time, damn it. This really is the last time. So he was just talking about how he was done with all this, with this sort of thing. Um, and then he actually goes back out to uh, defend the weak and helpless and innocent. So he goes outside and he just starts cutting people up real quick. He's killing people. He's cutting people's hands off. He's trying to defend these dwarves, these women who are being harmed. And said that he didn't mean to kill them. He just wanted to wound them. And as, as he's doing these things, somebody points out that he's an elf. They say that he's an elf. Kill the elf. And he thinks, I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. I mean, Dandelion, I could see why you would think that, but I don't resemble an elf at all. Uh, so he's about to kill this one guy and the this young man. And the young man says, mercy, spare me. So Geralt spared him. And he stopped. And he decided he wasn't going to kill this man. And he's about to back away. And then the young man stabs Geralt with a pitchfork in the stomach. And then we get a flashback to Kaer Morton right after this happens. So we get a flashback to Kaer Morton during the time where Ciri was there training. So all the witchers are there, Vesemir, Eskel, Cohen, Lambert, and Geralt, of course. Ciri's in bed, and they're talking about this trance that she had gone into earlier that day. Eskel says that we're going to have to summon a sorceress to come um, because what's happening to her is just not normal. And someone says that that's the third trance already. So this isn't the first time. It's not the second time. But they say it is the first time that she used articulated speech. And Vesemir wants to know, like, what, what exactly did she say? And Geralt says that he and Cohen are going to die. That's what was in the trance. And we did know this. We learned this in Blood of Elves. But we didn't get to witness this scene. Um, but in series trance, she said that teeth would be their undoing. And in Cohen's case, it would be two teeth, and in Geralt's case, three. And Lambert snorts that it, it's it's likely that they'd be bitten to death by a monster, like a gap-toothed monster. Um, yeah, the so we've known about these prophecies for a while. Geralt's death has been prophesized even after that, and we knew that Cohen did die from a two-pronged weapon in the Battle of Brenna. So this isn't this shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, at the beginning of the book in chapter one, when Ciri is in the world where there's you know King Arthur and his knights, and she's talking to Galahad, she says that her friends died in Rivia in her arms. So uh, that that was told to us. And then um, Nimue and Conwormers in the second chapter i believe the first time that we meet them they're talking about the legend of siri and she says that well the, the heroes aren't supposed to die so 
we've known about we've we've known that this is coming for a while but nothing you, you don't want to believe it you don't want the hero to die you don't want carol to die uh so you kind of want to remain hopeful throughout the story that this isn't really going to happen that these prophecies are bullshit okay yeah um cohen died well maybe that was just a coincidence even though like you just don't want to think that that like you want to think that there's a way around it that somehow it won't actually happen but it has been kind of staring us in the face for a while now so we return back to the present day and then this young man that stabbed Geralt looks like he's horrified about what he does what he did he drops the shaft and um Geralt is overbalanced by the trident sticking out of his stomach and he falls onto his knees and then it slides out of him and then he falls down onto the ground and he tried to get up, but he fell back over and he fell onto his side. And he saw, he looks up and he sees the crowd take flight. He saw them running from the relief from Zoltan and Yarpin holding battle axes. We're seeing the innkeeper holding a meat cleaver and Dandelion armed with a broom. I don't know why that alone scares the people away, but it does, which is... I guess good so they can get to Geralt. Not that it really helps, though. Um, but the next scene, the next scene, uh, we leave Geralt for a moment here to visit Yen and Siri and Triss as they are about to arrive in Rivia. So they're just outside the town. Siri's really excited to go see Geralt. And uh, they don't know what's going on yet. I guess they're far enough away distance from the town that they can't see the fires and hear the screaming and all of the commotion. Um, Triss sighs. And then Yennefer kind of comes at her saying, oh, what strange sounds are lifting from your virgin breast. And uh, she tells Siri to ride on ahead of them. And... Triss thinks about how she has been able to sense the closer they get to Rivia, the more she can sense the aggression in Yennefer getting stronger. And Yennefer is definitely very aggressive with Triss here. She's like, you're not riding to a rendezvous with your lover. Like, don't get excited about this. He knows about the role you played and I shall look and listen to your lame apologies and excuses and, um, and Triss kind of uh, claps back at this. She says, you know, I, I knew you wouldn't forget what I did. And I do accept that because I am indeed to blame. But Geralt knows how to forgive. And I think that's true. But Yen does have a good point when she says, yeah, he'll forgive you for what was done to him. But he's not going to forgive you for what was done to me and Siri. And I do think that that's true. I really don't know how Geralt would react to Triss and um, how she could have helped. And she didn't. And her betrayal. We don't get to find out. <laughs> so uh, Yen says, you know what? Whatever. He's not going to bully me. He's not going to stoop to that. And this really pisses off Yen. She says a little more humility, you arrogant slut. <laughs> uh, so yeah, she, she wants Triss to eat shit here. And Triss isn't really doing that. And I think it's because Triss has eaten shit with Yen in the past. And not that we've really seen that much. There was an example at the party in Aratusa right before the Thanad coup where Yen pulls Triss aside. And we don't get to see exactly what she says to her, but we know it has to do with um, Triss and Geralt sleeping together, which is something that Yen would never move on from. And this isn't all that Yen is upset about, of course. You know, Yen needed Triss's help, tried to... Um, 
enlist her to help her find Siri, and she refused so that she could work with the lodge, so that she could help them and be on their side uh, because she was so afraid of Philippa. And, um, yeah, but, um, but yeah, back to the thing in Aratusa. Yeah, so Yen said something to Triss, and it left Triss looking, feeling in Paris. She walks away. She doesn't continue hanging out with Yen after that moment. So you know that Yen tried to put her in her place for what she did. And I think that Triss is kind of like, you know what? I'm over this. I'm not going to continue to fall on my sword about this anymore. Like, well, like I, I'd rather just move on. Like, I'm not going to let you talk to me this way. And um, Yen tells her that she feels like grabbing her by her ginger mop of hair. And Triss really comes back at her. She says, just try, you bitch, and I'll scratch your eyes out. So, yeah, it's just, it's pretty interesting interaction here. And I think a lot of it does come down to Yen is, of course, Triss. She's pissed about Triss's betrayal. But I think she's still mad that Triss ever slept with Geralt in the first place. And it, and it really shows because she says he's he's my man, he's mine, he's only mine. Like you need to stop talking about him, thinking about him, delighting in his noble character. But I mean, if Triss feels bad about that, it's like how long is she gonna have to be punished by Yen for that? I don't know. I'm not really trying to defend anybody here. It's just I'm trying to look at it from the different perspectives. But it doesn't matter anyway because. The their little argument, their tiff is interrupted by Siri, who runs back really fast, and then the, that's when Yennefer and Triss can tell that something is afoot. They see the tongues of flames uh, shooting up over the thatched roofs. They hear the screaming. It's finally uh, made itself noticeable to them, where they finally just focused well enough to notice what was going on. And Siri rides up, and she raises her hand, and there's blood covering her hand, and she says that. The circle is closed. A thorn from Sherwood pricked me, and the snake, Ouroboros, has sunk its teeth into its own tail. And she says, I'm coming, Geralt. And then she takes off really fast on Kelpie. And Yen and Triss ride after her, but they can't catch up to her because nobody can catch up to that horse, to Ciri's horse. It's really, really fast. So they're riding after her, and then they find themselves in the town streets among the wailing mob. And they're trying to catch up with Siri, but she just jumps over people's heads. There's barricades of people, and they aren't able to get to wherever she's going. So Yen has to rein in her horse, and then she's dragged from the saddle. And then someone hits her on the shoulders and on her back and the back of her head. And then someone tries to kick her, and she's had enough of being kicked. She got her ass kicked really bad when she ended up out right outside of Stiga Castle. And so she uses fire to um, hurt the people that are trying to hurt her. And um, they see her using this magic and they say, oh, it's an elven witch. It's an enchantress. Let's get her. So somebody tries to attack her with a weapon and then she uses uh, fire again and his eyeballs burst. Very violent. And then... Someone grabs her by the arm and she's ready to attack that person too. But then she realizes that it's she realizes that it's Triss and Triss says, "Let's flee from here. Like we've got to go." And Yen thinks, "I've heard her talking in a voice like that before. I've heard her talking like that on Sodden Hill when she was dying of fear, and she's going to die of fear her whole life 
For whoever doesn't overcome the cowardice inside of themselves will die of fear to the end of their days. And we have seen that this has been a really big problem for Triss ever since she quote unquote died on the hill. She was one of the people that was noted to have been killed in the battle of Sodden, but she didn't actually die, of course, but she did get very badly injured. We find out that she passed out from fear and it's left a lot of emotional scars for her. And it's been um, something that she's thought back to a lot. Like when she went into that trance with Siri when they were in Kaer Morin, um, that was something that was presented to her in that trance that really messed with her. And um, she felt a lot of guilt, like the whole thing with the hill, being like the sodden hill, being on that hill. Um, but Yen tells her, you know what, Flea, you can go. You can go hide behind the skirts of your lodge. I have something to defend. I'm not going to leave Geralt and Ciri alone. So the crowd starts to separate as she's shooting these lightning bolts from her hands and her eyes. And then Triss bails and somebody points out, hey, this is just one sorceress. We can take her. And they say, you know, take up the stones. And people start throwing rocks at her. And she gets hit with a couple. And then she passes out and one hits her right in the face. And then she has a flashback moment. So she's unconscious and there's this flashback to probably right when she was new to becoming a sorceress, like learning to become a sorceress. So she's waking up after she tried to kill herself. So she tried to slit her wrists and she did not succeed. And she wakes to Tessia de Rice, who was the woman who uh, taught her a lot. She used to be the rectorist at Aratusa. Uh, Yen has mentioned that she learned a lot of what she's learned from Tessia. So Tessia tells her that she cut well and deep and had it only been silly games, she would have nothing but contempt for her, but she's going to take care of her. She says that I'm not only going to have to straighten your spine and your shoulder blade, but I'm also going to have to heal your hands now because your hands are going to be important as a sorceress. Um, and when she mentions that she had to straighten her spine and her shoulders, because um, what we learned all the way back in the last wish story in the last wish book was that Yennefer used to be a hunchback before she was a sorceress. So Tessiah tells her that you'll live, your time hasn't come yet, but when it does, you will recall this day. Very ominous. So she tells uh, Yennefer to cry. She says, cry your heart out for the last time. Uh, Cause you're not gonna be able to do that again since there is not a more hideous sight than a sorceress weeping. So she wakes up in Rivia Someone's dragging her across the ground. She realizes it was Triss. And this isn't the first time Triss has saved somebody uh, by dragging them across the ground in a chaotic moment. She saved Geralt back on Thanid. She was dragging him around until she was able to find Tessia, who helped teleport them to Broccolon. So, um, yeah, Triss has come in handy a couple of times. And uh, Yennefer tells Triss, you got to teleport us out of here. We got to leave. This isn't good. You were right the first time. Um... And Triss, she says, no, I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to hide behind the uh, lodge's skirts. I'm not going to faint from fear like I did at Sodden. I'm going to vanquish it inside of me. And it's actually a really nice moment, um, considering this is the last chapter. It's really cool to see this redemption with Triss after what she did, after her betrayal, and after everything that she suffered through, because she's not a bad person by any means, she's just made some mistakes. 
And um, so it's really nice to see that she overcomes that fear, that fear that's been haunting her since Sodom. And then there's this huge pile of garbage and waste. And it says it was a hill, one could say. So Triss has this hill again where she can actually stand on and redeem herself. And she drags Yennefer up on the hill. And then she raises her arms in the air and she screams out the spell. And she's screaming in this very powerful way and everybody notices and she tells Yennefer like help me cast Alzer's thunder at them which I guess is some sort of weather spell that would get the people to chill or kill them I'm not sure and Yennefer thinks yeah we can do that but we're only probably gonna kill five of them and then the rest of them are just gonna kill us but you know what if you're not gonna run away then I'm not gonna run away either so Yennefer joins in and the two of them are trying to cast this spell and people are attacking them and they're trying to throw shit at them. And Yennefer thinks like, oh God, this isn't working. I don't think we're going to be able to do this. I think I'm going to have to stop so I can try to teleport us out of here. But uh, she ended up not needing to do that because the sky suddenly darkened and clouds teemed above the town. So she definitely did something and we find out that it actually went down in history because we very quickly go into the future to Codwormers and Nimue. Thought we would be done with them by now, but we'd get to visit them again one last very quick time in this book. So Nimue refers to it as Marigold's Destructive Hailstorm. So it was actually a spell that although it was never registered, it became known years and years into the future. And Conwormer says that there's no shortage of examples of the venerable Triss's valor and courage. Some chronicles even call her the fearless. So Triss goes down in history as this very heroic, brave sorceress, which is pretty cool. And um, Conwormer mentions that one of the legend's versions says that Triss wasn't alone on the hill, that Yennefer was there with her, which she was. We just witnessed that but in history it wasn't noted that Yennefer helped her with that and Nimmy points out that if anybody was there with Triss uh, they didn't endure in the artist's vision so we come back to the present day and then all this hail starts to fall down on the city um, really large pieces of ice not just little pieces of hail like, this is pretty dangerous and everybody starts to scatter. They're crawling under each other. They're trying to run away. They're falling on the ice. They're um, crowding into doorways and cowering by the walls. And then suddenly it stopped all of a sudden. And then that gave the army to rush into the square. And then that led the mob to flee. And Yen says to Tris, bravo. I don't know what that was but you did a nice job. So they were just fighting a moment ago and then they have this nice moment after they both almost died. And Yen thinks that, okay, well, this probably isn't over yet, but it actually was over uh, because the hail cooled down the hot heads and that was enough for the army to intervene and get everybody to stop completely because um, they were too afraid to come into the town because uh, they understood that people who are in this angry state, this uh, violent, you know, they're out for blood state, uh, you can't 
you can't stop them. Like there's nothing that the army would have been able to do. So the hail was what actually got it to end. And a lot of people had already died by that point, but a lot of uh, more people probably would have died if it wasn't for the hailstorm. Um, but a lot of people start to calm down. There was a man who had just a moment earlier beaten a dwarf woman to death and shattered her child's head against a wall. Uh, he's now sobbing and he's weeping and he's looking at uh, what was left of the roof of his house. And um, it says that were it not for the almost 200 mutilated corpse and a dozen burned down homesteads, one might think that nothing had happened because this very beautiful rainbow appears in the sky and the weeping willows are reflecting beautifully in smooth mirror-like water on the lake and then the birds are singing and it smelled nice of wet foliage and everything looked pastoral. So even after all this ugliness... Life continues. Life continues even while these terrible, horrible things are happening. So life moves on. And then they arrive to see Geralt. He's unconscious. He's motionless. And then he starts to cough and spit up blood and he's shaking and Siri can't get him to stop. And then Yennefer gets down and She's performing these spells to try and heal Geralt, to try to save him. And Siri points out that your magic isn't working. It's not helping to heal him. And Yennefer says that they arrived too late. And Siri says, what's, what's it worth, your confounded magic? And Triss thinks, you're right. Like We know how to cause a hailstorm. We know how to do something like that, but we can't drive death away. So... Siri's feeling a lot of resentment towards the magic that is... A lot of importance has been placed on magic to, when, with Siri. A lot of people have acted like it's this really important thing, like it's super prestigious, and that people that practice magic are these uh, people that are worthy of a lot of respect. And but you can't save this man that you love. You can't save Geralt with magic. So one of the dwarves says that they uh, sent for a doctor, but he's taking his time. And Triss says, well, it's too late for that anyway. He's dying. And Geralt trembles once more, coughs up blood again, and then he goes still. So Yennefer starts to cry. And Siri tells her that there's nothing more pathetic than a weeping sorceress. And you taught me that. But now you're pathetic. You're really pathetic, Yennefer. You and your magic, which isn't fit for anything. So Siri's being really harsh toward Yen here, but I think she's just kind of disgusted with it all. And uh, yeah, it's just interesting. She calls her Yennefer. I don't know if there's ever been a moment where she calls her that. And if there has been, it's been a long time. She usually calls her Madam Yennefer or Mama. So now she's just calling her by her first name. And Yennefer's holding Geralt's head and she's repeating these spells. She's trying to revive him. And Triss is thinking how she knows that spells like that use up a lot of energy. And she can't believe that Yennefer is even able to continue doing what she's doing. Like it doesn't actually make any sense, but she's not amazed anymore when Yennefer stops in the middle of her magic formula. And then she falls onto the ground besides Geralt. And then all of a sudden, the surface of the lake filled with fog and it rises swiftly and it rolls over onto the land. And Ciri says that she once renounced her power and had she not renounced it, she would have saved him. She would have healed him. And it's as if she killed him herself. 
And then everybody was struck dumb because a white unicorn emerged from the fog. So the unicorn's running over the, sur the surface of the lake and the water's not rippling under the unicorn's hooves. And this unicorn is Little Horse. So Little Horse comes back after he tried to save Siri from Aridin's Red Riders back when she was teleporting from world to world. And then um, his horn suddenly lights up with a bright glare and Siri touches it. And she's holding onto the horn with one hand and then she points with her other hand towards Geralt and a ribbon of flickering brightness that glowed like lava flowed from her fingers. And Little Horse, he points in the direction of a boat on the lake. And Siri tells everybody around to help her. So Dandelion, he understands what's going on because he's heard these legends before. So he picks up Yennefer and he starts to carry her towards the boat. And he could have sworn that Kahir was there helping him carry her. And he could have sworn that he saw a flash of Milva and that Angolem was there steadying the boat. And then the dwarves and Triss start to carry Geralt and Yarpin thought that he saw the Dalberg brothers and Zoltan thought that he saw Caleb Stratton. And then Triss also thought that she saw Coral and Cohen. So Coral was um, one of her sorceress friends who died on Sodden. And uh, Cohen, of course, was the witcher that died. Interesting thing here is that nobody sees Regis. So, Sapkowski has said, I don't know, in an interview or somewhere at some point, uh, that the reason Regis doesn't show up here, because there were theories that Regis isn't really dead, because he's this higher vampire and it isn't that easy to kill him, um, that's the reason why he wouldn't be here because he's not really dead. But Sapkowski has actually confirmed that no Regis is really dead, but he doesn't show up here because he's a vampire. He doesn't have like the same kind of soul basically that a human would have. So, but you know what? It's not explicitly written in the book. Um, Regis isn't even mentioned at all. So you can interpret it however you want, but that is something that the author of the book has specifically said about this part. All these people that have died show up here, kind of. I mean, they might just be imagining them. It's not even definitive that they were really seeing them because it says that that was the kind of tricks played on the senses by the fog of seeing these people. Anyway. Siri is getting on the boat and she says to Triss, apologize to the lodge. I can't stay when Geralt and Yennefer are departing and they ought to understand. And Triss says they ought to. And she says, let me sail away with you. And Siri says, you don't know what you're asking, Triss. And she's about to ask her if she'll ever come back. And Siri says for certain. So she gets on the boat and then begins to sail away. And Triss thinks that Siri lied to her. She's never actually gonna see her again because something ends and Dandelion says out loud, something has ended and Yarpin says, something is beginning. And then the next scene, Geralt opened his eyes. He saw branches heavy with apples. He felt the soft touch of fingers on his temple and cheek and his belly and his chest and his ribs are hurting, which are leaving him in no doubt that the town of Rivia and the pitchfork hadn't been a nightmare. So he's laying there on the ground, he's outside, he's with Yen, and he asks her where they are. 
And she says, it's not important. We're together. So there's birds singing and it smells really nice, like grass and herbs and flowers, also apples. So he asks where Siri is. She says that she's gone away. She looked at him voraciously. He looked at her too and longing choked him. And he says that we were with Siri on a boat, on a lake, then on a river. And then the river had the strong current. We were in the fog. She says, it doesn't matter. I'm beside you and I'll never leave you. And he said, yeah, well, I still like to know where we are. And she says, me too. And then that scene ends and there's one more scene. But first I want to talk about this one. <laughs> this is really interesting. So what I think it was also confirmed by Sapkowski was they are on the Isle of Avalon, which is an Arthurian thing. And I think there are some legends that say that the Isle of Avalon and the biggest giveaway of what that is, is the apple trees. So that was on the Isle of Avalon. But I think that there's a version where Arthur goes there after dying and it's basically like an afterlife. And I think there's another version where he goes there after getting seriously injured and he goes there to heal until it's his time to return back to his world until he's needed again. So you can interpret this however you want. You can interpret it that Geralt and Yennefer are just healing on this island and they're going to be there for as long as they need to or as long as um, they are needed again back in their world. Or you can interpret it that, yeah, they're, they're just dead and this is some kind of afterlife. This is some kind of heaven. Uh, you can maybe even interpret it in other ways. I'm sure that that's not all you're limited to. Um, but it's up to you, however you would like to decide what has happened to them. I mean, the, the version of them not really being dead and being able to come back as the nicest version, I think that that's better as opposed to them just being dead and gone for good. But you know, either way, something ends, something begins. So the next scene, we return to Siri and Galahad. We left off with them in chapter one of this book. We don't pick back up with them until now. So Siri had been telling him the story. So this is her finishing the story. And he says, and is that the end of the story? And she says, would you like the story to end like that? Like, hell, I wouldn't. So it's kind of reminiscent of back in the second chapter when Conwormers and Nimue are talking about this story and Conwormers are saying that stories shouldn't end like that. Heroes shouldn't die. Like that's not a good story. The ending sucks. So yeah, Siri's saying that the ending of that story sucked, even though that's what really happened. <laughs> uh, so he asks her, okay, well then what happens? And she says, they got married. They had this beautiful wedding and Dandelion was there and Mother Nenica, Iola, Yurinid, Yarpin, Zegrin, Vesemir, Eskel, Cohen, Milva, Angolem, and my missile. And Geralt and Yennefer, they got their own house and they were very happy, like in a fairy tale. So she invents this alternate ending for the story to make it have a nice ending. And I do like that ending. I wish that that's really what happened. Uh, so Galahad goes on to tell Siri that, oh, well, there's actually a lot of astounding adventures that occur here in our world. And he starts to tell her about one of them. And then she interrupts him. She says, Galahad, he goes, yes. And she says, be quiet. She's not very nice to him. 
But he tells her that he'd like her to ride with him to Camelot. And she doesn't answer. And she's being a little bossy with him. And she says, let's saddle up. Let's go. We, we got to move on from here. It's getting dark out. And he asks her again, will you ride with me to Camelot? And she thinks to herself, why not? I bet any money that in this world a job could be found for a witcher girl. Because there isn't a world where there wouldn't be work for a witcher. There isn't a world where there's no evil to fight against. There isn't a world where people don't need defending. So they ride off together. They ride straight into the setting sun. They're leaving behind them the valley and the, the boulders hanging over the lake and the hillside and the pines on the hillside and the beautiful lake itself. That was all behind them. And before them was everything. And that's the last sentence of the book. So... <laughs> God, I don't even know. I can't just end it because the chapter is over. I, I feel like I've got to say something. Carol, I talked about this already in this episode, but he was always conflicted. He always wanted to help the innocent, even though it went against the Witcher's code. And that was one of the first things that he experienced after he was done with his witcher training. He defended this innocent woman against these men that were trying to harm her. And she looked at him like he was a monster after he saved her. And he decided, nope, not going to do that anymore. And he just, he did it over and over and over again. He's gotten very involved in things where he was supposed to remain neutral. And he was always very conflicted about that. And then that ended up being his downfall in the end. That ended up being his undoing. And Yennefer, I don't know that her send-off was really as, uh, what's a good word, poetic as Geralt's? Not, not that Geralt's is really poetic, just symbolic. But the fate of these two have been entwined ever since Geralt's last wish with the djinn back in The Last Wish. So they expire together. I don't really want to use the word die because of, are they really dead? I don't know. It doesn't matter though because the story's over here. And Siri is now living in another world. And it doesn't look like she had any intention of really coming back um, considering what Triss said that Siri lied when she said that she would return. She actually, like, Triss isn't ever going to see her again because she's never going to come back. She can, though. She's got the option to. She can go anywhere she wants. But that's how the story ends for our characters. Uh, the rest of them, though, uh, I mean, I, I did wonder what they were going to do, like, after, like, Yarpin and Zoltan, Triss and Dandelion, you know, they're kind of standing around after. They put the bodies on the boat and watch Siri take off on the boat with them. Wonder what they did after that. You go back to the tavern and continue drinking. And Triss joined them and hang out. And they told all their favorite Geralt and Yennefer and Siri stories. Well, I guess a lot of them wouldn't really have Siri stories. Yarpin and Triss and Dandelion would have a few. Who knows? But yeah. What an amazing story, The Witcher. Oh, my goodness. 
I don't really have much else to say about it. We're not done talking about it, though, so that's okay. We're going to continue in the next episode with at least chapter one and two of Season of Storms. I don't know how far we'll go in that first episode, but at least the first two chapters for sure. So I'm going to uh, leave off with that. But thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you've listened to most of the series, my goodness, I appreciate it so much. I really appreciate I can't express it enough. I just want to keep saying I appreciate it, <laughs> but I do. So thank you. And I hope I catch you in the next one. Bye.